Okay, chapter 5. Chapter 4 and 5, if, you, if you're kind of catching back up, are really what we would like to call an interlude, or I like to call it a breather, kind of this whew, that, that go on between uh, some of the um, uh, cycles of, of sevens that we're going to run into. So if you think of the structure of Revelation, the first part of it, we went through the seven letters to the churches, and now chapters four and five allow you to do this, because we're getting ready to, to break open seven seals, which kind of unleash and take us to uh, a picture of what happens at the very end of, of time. So in that breather, what happens is, is God literally invites John to come up and to go through a door and to actually see and experience what's going on in heaven. And the point of it is, as you look at these pictures of what John is seeing, the point of it is, he, God wants John to recognize uh, you're going to see some hard things, some tough things. I'm going to show you what is going to happen on earth. There's going to be things you look at and you won't like. But always know this. I, your God, am in charge. There's nothing happening on earth that I'm not aware of. There's nothing happening on earth that I'm not permissioning to happen. I'm, I'm in control of things. So John... Just breathe. Okay. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are, are two parts of the same, really. Uh, in both parts, you're, you're just seeing this picture of God. And he is enthroned in heaven. Uh, in chapter 5, you get a little bit different look at, at what God is doing. And so I want to just kind of jump back in there. Because there's some rich theology that you pick up as you look at this snapshot of who God is. So go back to verse uh, chapter 5. Just kind of go back through with me. He says, then I saw, this is just a continuation of chapter 4. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll that was written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Okay, so um, I, I've seen the king. I've seen him on his throne. He's a king. He's a priest. He's here to serve us. He's got the, the rainbow uh, above him signifying his promise. He's got the 24 elders around him. All right, we've seen all that in chapter 4. Now I look again, and that one that's seated on the throne, the one with the promise, in his right hand he's got a scroll. And it's written within and on back. And that scroll is representative of the entirety of God's plan from beginning to end. And um, so as he holds on this to this scroll, what he's holding on to is the whole of history. So he says, in verse 2, I saw a strong angel. And we, we talked about this last week, that as we've gone through chapters 4 and 5 and been able to look into heaven, you see that there are different kinds of angels, right? You see that, that you have the, the cherubim that end up uh, symbolically in the tabernacle and in the temple uh, in, over the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, you have the seraphim, the fire angels, uh, you have what we call archangels. And here you have what is called in Greek the Ascurios angel, the strong angel. And so there seem to be, you know, various kinds of angels in God's Sabbath army that he uses and charges to, to watch over his creation. Here he's using this angel to be the proclaimer. In a loud voice he cries out. Notice his words here because I'm going to spend just a moment on them. I think that it's worth it. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Who is worthy? Okay. And the, uh, the Greek word that we're going to look at here is axios. Uh, which one of you is, is able to 
open the scroll up, you're qualified to open this scroll up. Okay. So he says in verse 3, no one in heaven. Now don't, don't mistake this. John is in the heaven, right? Presence of God. Here, the term uranos is used to signify created heaven, what we would call our atmosphere. So John would say, the angel would say, listen, there's no one uh, in, in the heavens, there's no one on the earth, and there's no one under the earth, right? Probably signifying under the, the sea, right? There's no one that's able to open the scroll or to look in it. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there for a minute because I, I want you to pick up something. No one is able to open up this scroll. No one is worthy. There's, there's, some, there's some significance here in that we're, we're living in a day and an age where when you talk about what it means to be worthy to come into the presence of God, I really have a sense that we're living in a, in a day and age in a culture that has really got this messed up. Okay. So you go out and you start talking to people about what happens to you after you die. Okay. And, and you, it's true, there's, there are atheists here in, in America, but the percentage of atheists is not gigantic. Right? There's a lot of agnostics in America, probably the fastest growing part of our even Christian population would be agnostics. If I, if I talk to an agnostic and I say, what, what happens to you when you die? What would an agnostic typically say back? What would their response be? We're not sure, right? We're not positive. I mean, that's, that's the definition of agnosticism. But don't stop there because a lot of agnostics will say, well, we're not quite sure, but I believe... And how will they go on? I believe that when a person dies, they will go where? To heaven. Whatever heaven is. Now, they're not going to describe it for you. They're not going to say, well, this is, you know, it's the heaven of the Bible. Like, well, we're not quite sure what exactly it is, but I believe that when you die, you, you're going to go to some kind of a heaven. Is there an afterlife? Well, a lot of agnostics would say, yeah, I think there's some kind of an afterlife. Okay? In churches, let's go into churches. I go from church to church. There's a lot of different denominations in America. And I pull up a seat beside someone. I go, tell me what happens when you die. Well, most people in churches are going to say what? When you die, you what? You go? You go to heaven. I'm like, okay, so what is this heaven that we're going to? What is the thing? Is it the one in the Bible? Is it something else? How do we know that we're going to go there? Well, I believe in our, our world today, the prevailing theology says something like this. Everyone who dies will go to heaven as long as they have what? Tried to do the best, be honest with yourself, try to live your life to the best of your ability, and as long as you've tried to do that, then whatever heaven is, you're going to go there. Okay? Um, this is why you could go out with a microphone today and, 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 a, and a film crew and just walk around and you're going to get a lot of that. Where, where do I go? You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven? Yep, we're going to heaven. We're going to go to heaven. Is it true? Is it true? Okay. Well, it kind of comes back to this word axios right here and what's going on in heaven. We've got this scroll. Who's worthy to open it up? Who has the ability to open it up? Okay. Well, in order to qualify to open up that scroll, guess what you have to be? You have to be 
axios, which we translate with the word worthy. Let me give you another word that maybe you'll understand better. The word is perfect. You have to be perfect without sin. Now, try this one on for size. Same microphone, go out, interview 100 people, ask them this question. Is it true that the qualification to enter into heaven, whatever you think heaven is, is it true that the qualification to enter into heaven is you must be perfect? How would most people answer that question? No, you can't be. Are you kidding me? You've got to be perfect? Okay. I was watching one guy who was preaching a sermon one time, and, and uh, he was walking back and forth. He was doing a good job preaching, but he says this. He goes, okay, everybody, now we're going to talk about what God says about heaven and how we're going to get to heaven. He goes, now, I want everybody to do this with me. He says, God doesn't expect everyone to be perfect. If God expected everyone to be perfect, we would all be in trouble. And he said, now, everybody just do this with me. Whew, thank you, God, that we don't have to be perfect, except there's this little verse in the Bible. That just messes everything up. And so I want you to look at it with me. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. So just flip over there to Matthew 5 with me. And I want you to take a look at this word with me that's kind of surprising to a lot of people. A lot of folks don't even know this is in the Bible. But it is. So we'll look at it. Flip over to uh, verse 43. And notice, if your Bible has red letters in it, that there's a lot of red letters going on here in chapter 5 because what Jesus is doing is he's blowing the minds of people when it comes to his expectations. And uh, he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to a group of people who love the law and who take the law and dissect it into little parts and they try to live it out and they say, well, you know, if you're going to please God, you've got to live under the law and you've got to take you know, make your sacrifices. And, and so he goes, okay, well, let's just, let's just talk about the law for a little bit. And as he goes through, as he goes through um, this, he'll, he'll say things like this. Well, you've heard it said that you, you shouldn't commit adultery with a woman. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, don't commit adultery. He goes, oh, but I'm going to tell you this. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> Have you ever committed adultery? He says, oh, no, you heard it said you shall not kill. Have you all heard that? They're like, yep, we heard that one. We, we got it on, hey, come here, Jesus. We got it on our wall. We got the commandments right here. You shall not kill. We got it. We memorized it in catechism. We can't even tell you what this means. Do you know that one, Jesus? What does this mean? Do you know that one? He goes, yeah, I know what this means. Here's what it means. If you've ever hated anyone, you've killed them. Have you broken the commandment? like, whoa, who's this rabbi? This rabbi is serious. I mean, he's taking like every commandment and going down the line with it. Well, you know where it all concludes? In a shocking way. A lot of people find this shocking, but I, I, do, I do want you to see it because I think it's important. Over in verse 48, we'll go 43 to 48. Here's what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
So what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now watch this next verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's where he sets the standard, right there. The answer to the question is really pretty plain in the Bible. What, what is the requirement for someone to enter into heaven? Is it that I try really hard to follow the Ten Commandments? Is it that I live a life where at least I'm honest to myself? No. No, the standard, the absolute standard for anyone to enter into heaven, for anybody to be axios, worthy of opening this scroll, is they must be what? Perfect. How perfect? As perfect as my Father is perfect. You have to be as perfect as God. How does that happen? Well, interestingly, the answer is actually in the word itself. When you look at this word perfect in the Greek, it's kind of put it in English down here, teleoi. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it's actually the last word that Jesus spoke when he hung on the cross. And when Jesus died and he took your sin upon himself, here's what he said, teleao. Been paid for. Perfected. You have been made perfect in me. So that when I'm in Jesus Christ, when I'm in faith, guess what? How does God see you? As Jesus. Perfect. Without sin. When you're outside of faith, outside of Jesus Christ, guess what you are? Doomed. You have not a chance in the world. Because the, the standard for heaven is not that you tried really hard or that you've made a good shot at it, but that you literally be perfect. Well, there's only one way that can happen, and that's under and through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's really what you're seeing here is when we get up into the heavens and this scroll is held out by the one who's seated on the throne, the question is, who can open it up? And when, when the angel looks, he says, well, when you look at all of creation, whether it's in the skies or under the seas or on the earth itself, there's no one that can open it. But there is one who is perfect, and he is the one who will perfect you. And that one would be who? Would be Jesus Christ. Now look at how he's described here, this Jesus Christ. Go back over to Revelation. Verse number four, John begins to cry because he recognizes the state that we're in as fallen people. And the, the angel uh, speaks to him and says, don't, don't weep, don't weep, John, because there is one who is worthy. And here's how he's described here, and it, it really kind of parallels what we saw in chapter 4. He says, weep no more, behold, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That language comes out of the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis chapter 49, uh, verses 8 to 12, you have this picture where um, Jacob is blessing his sons. And as he places his blessing upon Judah, he says, Judah, you're, you're, you, you, are the, you are the lion tribe, right? 
And ultimately, it's, it's out of that tribe that Jesus uh, comes through David's lineage. And so when you look at Jesus, it's right to picture him as, as a lion. He's, he's the lion king. Remember in chapter 4, we saw him as the king seated upon the throne. There it is again in chapter 5. He's the lion king. Um, he's also, not to be mistaken for being simply a person, the root of David. So you came from David's lineage, but you're also the root of David. Okay? How can you be the root of David? Well, that means that you, what, you, you gave him life. So at the same time that you were born of the lineage of David, true man, you also are the one who gave David life, true God. The lion who is both true man and true God. Guess what? Jesus Christ had to be both. Had to be both for us. In order for us to have the perfection that he desires to give us to the cross, he had to do two things. He, as a man, had to live out the law on our behalf perfectly. That's what he did for you. Secondly, he had to take the punishment for our sins upon himself and die as a sacrifice, okay, as a man. Then he had to be risen from the dead. He had to be God. So both things are signified here is when I look, what do I see? I see the lion king who both, what, came from David's seed, but also was the root of, of, of David, the one who actually gave him life. He is the one that's worthy to take the scroll and to open it. Now, notice verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures. I think those words are important. Between the throne and the four living creatures. Between is intermediary, right? I'm standing between you and someone else. So here's God. Here's the four living creatures, angels, right? And here's now not a lion, but what? A lamb. Interesting. Lamb, priest. What do lambs do? Sacrifice. They're the sacrifice. What do priests do? Make the sacrifice. So I just want you to see that parallel. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus who was the king priest. It's the very same thing here in chapter 5. He is the lion lamb. He is the one who becomes the sacrifice for our sins. He is the one now that is able to open up uh, the scroll and its seven seals. He stands between us and the Father. He is the intermediary. When you look at the lamb, he looks strange to you. He has seven horns and seven eyes that are described as being the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. Okay. Seven horns. Why seven horns? Seven, always Jesus' number, right? Horns representing wisdom. Right? So he has, he has the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is placed upon Jesus Christ. Seven eyes are described for us. They are the spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I don't want you to mistake this. Again, if you try to read the symbols of Revelation literally, you're going to end up in a mess because they, they symbolize something that actually exists, but the symbols themselves are not what exists. So you don't have seven Holy Spirits. You know, like the Holy Spirit doesn't like, okay, let's get together and let's just divide up into seven things and go whoosh, whoosh, like that. No. Um, seven is just meant to say what? Jesus, right? Who's the Holy Spirit trying to do? Bring people into relationship with Jesus. What is the Holy Spirit doing right now? Going out into all the earth 
And he's doing two things. One we actually heard about this morning uh, in our message, if, if, if in fact you were awake throughout most of the message, all right? You know, I don't take that for granted. <laughs> so if you were listening, you know, one, one of the more beautiful prayers in the Old Testament is First Chronicles 16, verse number 9, where he says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro the earth, seeking whom is committed to him that they might be uplifted, right? So one of the things the Spirit of God is doing right now is he comes out and the Spirit of God knows you and knows what you need to be what? To be lifted up, strengthened, sometimes challenged in him. What's the other thing the Holy Spirit's doing right now? The Holy Spirit's going out into all of the earth with the desire to do what? To bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they might have the perfection of his blood. And so when you look at the lamb who is slain, it's not like he's just up in heaven saying, okay, I'm up here, I've done my job, that's it. He's saying, no, the Spirit of God is going out into all the world to bring people into a relationship with me, to bring them true wisdom. And so when you look at the lamb, uh, you're looking at the one who now has the ability to open up the scrolls and the one who wants to bring people into a relationship with himself. Verse number seven says, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, remember these are angels, and the 24 elders, remember that? That's representative of the whole of, of human beings, both Old Testament period, a time, and New Testament period and a time who have died and are present in heaven with God, all of them fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay. We saw this back in chapter 4, and this, this, is, this just always, always hits me. I think when you can look in heaven and you see human beings, now souls, and what they're doing. They're doing the same thing the angels are doing. They know who they are and they know what they desire. Their desire has become the same as the desire of the Father. When you fall down before someone and you have a harp, right, your intention is to do what? To worship them. To say to them, I, I belong to you. Uh, I know who I am. I am yours, made yours through this lamp. You made me your own, okay? I come, I come before you to, to worship you, okay? Um, holding now, this is kind of interesting, the, the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, okay? Uh, that takes us back. It's kind of a word picture. Um, in Exodus chapter 30, you, you kind of get a picture of what's going on in, the, in temple worship. And one of the things I love about temple worship is um, when, when God created the, the tabernacle or the temple, he put it in the center of, of community. So if you could picture Grand Island, and if you could take Grand Island and you could build Grand Island completely around a large church so that every morning when you woke up and you walked out, the first thing you did not hear is the first thing I heard this morning. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I know what Grand Island's about. <laughs> Didn't take me long. First thing you would hear when you would walk out, call to worship early in the morning. Everybody. Why? 
because your homes are all, here's the, here's what? The church in the center of the community. What is it doing? It's defining who we are. We are a people of worship. So what's the first thing the priests did? I mean, you think Grand Island smells bad. At times it does. <laughs> you got to admit it. Smell a money thing. That's, 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 I don't know who came up with that. But we're going to have a chat because that, that didn't write, okay? Well, you think the smell of money's bad. Think about the smell of sacrifice. I mean, those priests, not just sometimes, but every day, they would take these animals and they'd kill them and they'd burn them. And so you know what you do early in the morning? This is what worship was. The first thing, the first act of worship is to do this. Oh my gosh, what's that smell? Here's the answer. It's you. It's your sin. You think you're somebody? You think you're special? Think the world revolves around you? You got your agenda, your calendar for the day, and we're going to go out because the world belongs to you? That's what the world tells you. Let me tell you what God says. Oh, you need help. Doesn't smell too good. Sin. And that was intentional. Life was built around the tabernacle to communicate something. We are a people of worship. Our first act of worship is to come before God and breathe in the stench and to say to God, God, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. You know what the very next thing they do? Bowls of incense. They light them. And that incense would come up and would cover up the smell of sin. And all of a sudden, you'd start finding yourself going, that smells a little better. Something must be covering up that awful smell. Well, it, it was. It is. It's the incense that the priests are burning. And what, is he, what are they really saying? What's well, the second part of worship is to receive the grace of God, to know that we are covered by his blood. He is the one who perfects us. And it's kind of interesting that in this scene in heaven, you have these people who've died and gone before us, and what are they doing? They're bowing down before God to worship. It's what God's people begin each day with. End each day with. We submit ourselves to you. And how do we come? We come covered by what? This beautiful smell. The incense of God. And as a covered up people, uh, what, what this incense is doing, it's, it's, now, it's now lifting up to God the prayer of the saints. And it's, it's a singular prayer. What do the saints pray for? What do those people in heaven pray for? They pray for what? For others to be covered by Jesus Christ and for him to come. That's it. The prayers of the saints in heaven are not, oh, we need this and we need this, we need that. Nope. They are bring people to you and come quickly. Let it come to an end. And so John is experiencing this. He's watching these people lay down before God and lift up that prayer to him. Our prayers are, Lord, that you would cover others who are yet to be covered so that the end might come. Now they sing a song. And um, this, this, this song, this new song uh, that they sing um, is kind of referenced in the Psalms, Psalm 98. Uh, but I want you to kind of hear the words of it and, and because, again, they're significant. And know, know that in our, in our Lutheran church body, 
we've actually kind of captured a little bit of this song and put it into our liturgy. And uh, from time to time, we'll, we'll, we'll sing uh, this song, uh, This is the Feast. This is the Feast. It's expressed in a little bit different way uh, here, and I, I love the words because, again, they are just rich in theology. Um, look at the words with me. They're, they're a quotation, again, coming out of the psalm. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, and every language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That's the song that they're singing. Okay. There's some richness to that. There's, first of all, the recognition. Who are you? You're the one that is worthy. You're the perfect one. Who are you? You're the one that was slain. You're the sacrifice for our sins. Who are you? You're the one who by your blood ransomed people for God. Kind of stop there with me for just one minute because I want to I say something else that uh, sometimes shocks people, but it's true. Um, when we talk about this, this ransoming that Jesus has done, um, you know, from time to time you'll hear me talk about in, in a typical Roman city, you know, you have homes and, and you've got typically some type of a entertainment district, uh, and then you have what they call the agora or the marketplace, okay? Uh, the, uh, the word agora means marketplace, but it's, it's also the word that's kind of underneath this verb, ransomed, and here, here's how it sounds. Uh, you are the one who agorazo ransomed us with your blood. Now, when you hear that word ransomed, um, I, I hope some pictures come to your mind because again what these saints are doing is they're saying this is who you are and this is what you do you ransom people with your blood what does that mean okay I'm gonna say this in a shocking way and, and I'll try to answer some of the subsidiary questions that always come with it I, I like to just mess with people and so I'll sometimes say when you're born when you're born in the world a little baby comes along you get a birth certificate right what's on that birth certificate you ever looked at your birth certificate? I looked at my What's that? Yeah, your mom and your dad's names on there, typically, right? Um, where you were born, okay? Most of you know when, where you were born, right? I hope. Maybe the time that you're born, maybe the weight that you were, right? Some of us, they take your feet and they like, stuck them in ink and then stuck them on the page. So you get your footprint on there, okay? And... Um, and now you've got your, your birth certificate. Well, what if I were to add a line on there and I were to say this? Okay, so you're, you're your mom and your dad's. I mean, do you actually belong to your mom and your dad? Do they own you? Your mom and dad own you? No. Now they have some, actually, according to our, our laws here in the United States, they have some, some legal obligation to you, but they don't own you. So what if we added a line and we just said, owner? Who is the owner of this person? Well, all of us in this room, our very first desire is to say, who is the owner of this person? Who do we want to say? God. He's the creator, the one who creates, sustains. Um, I'm just, I, I don't want to just mess you up too bad today, but I guess I better. What if I put on that, what if I put on that line right here? 
owner, Satan. That shock you? I mean, I don't really like to think of that. Here's this baby, like, hey, you're the mom and dad, congratulations. You know who owns this baby? Satan. Is that true? Is it true that from a spiritual perspective, this child is owned by Satan? Yeah, it is. Why? Because there, there is a, remember this word? A requirement. Perfection that God has for that child to be his. That child is born in sin, under sin, right? And under sin, guess what the requirement is? The legal, spiritual requirement for anyone who has sin is what? You're, you're owned by, by Satan. Unless a sacrifice is made and becomes yours, you actually are owned by him. The meaning of this word, I'm telling you, is very, very rich. When these people are bowing down and saying, you orgorazzo, you ransomed people with your blood, he's saying this in two ways. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the price for, with his blood, for every human being ever to be born past, present, future. He's, that, that price has been paid. Was it paid for Hitler? Oh, yeah. Was it paid for ISIS people? Oh, yeah. There's no person it wasn't paid for. So will all those people be in heaven? No. Why? Because that sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross becomes mine, becomes mine through what? Through faith. Outside of faith, yeah, it's, it's there, it's available for me, but it's, it's not mine, Right? And so I remain under the demand of the law, which says I must be perfect. I am not perfect. Therefore, guess who I'm owned by? Satan. I'm owned by Satan. When you say you've been ransomed us, is what you're saying is, now I've taken the price for your sin, and I've bought you back from, right, slavery. You belong to him? Guess what? I paid the price. You're now mine. We become his through what? Faith, which takes hold of the promise that God indeed paid the price for us. Now I become his. Now I've got a new owner. Subsidiary questions that we always get asked. Okay, so people say, well, that, that's great. That's pretty, it's pretty shocking. It tells you how important it is to, to bring people to faith, right? Subsidiary questions are, okay, pastor, so now you, you just showed up in the hospital. Right? And here's mom and dad, and they're in tears. Oh, I've, been, I've been in this place many times. And mom and dad say to me, um, our child was miscarried. Miscarried child. We, we had one. We had a miscarriage. And uh, so now the question is, so pastor, what do you say about our, our, our child? Our child it was never baptized. Our child never really even drew a breath. Is that child is owned by Satan? Technically and legally, if I'm reading the Bible, what would the technical answer be? They, they were owned by Satan, yes. What we know is that in, in life, a person is ransomed through faith, right? They're brought into faith through the hearing of the word or the sacrament, baptism. Um... If a child is not able to, 
to receive that word or be baptized, are they automatically now um, just remove, remove the possibility of heaven? No, I don't believe that. Here's the answer, and I'm going to be really just blunt and honest with you because I have to be. The real answer is, when you look at the Bible, look at, look at factually what it teaches us. Also look at, factually, what I call the character of God. Okay? What we know about the character of God is he is a God of what? Grace. Okay? Do I believe that God, in his grace, covers or provides for the salvation of those who are not able to even be born? Breathe air. Luke believes that. Yes, I do. Okay. Have I sat with many parents and said, I believe and trust that? Yes, I have. Okay. Do I, can I point to a verse that absolutely says, yes, this is what it is? No, I can't. Okay. What I can point you to are verses over and over again that describe the character of God. Okay. So we're not going to do what the Catholics do. The Catholics have created a special place in heaven called limbo where... They suggest, you know, if a baby is, dies, you know, then the baby is up into limbo, and in limbo, the baby just remains a baby for the rest of its life and into eternity. It's just always a baby. Okay? We're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is we are going to be honest enough to say that when you talk about who Jesus Christ is and the importance of faith, the importance of faith is that apart from his perfection, you cannot attain eternity with him. And that perfection comes through faith, and faith is the ransoming of a person. It's actually buying you back from your spiritual owner, who always is Satan. We are born in sin. Under the curse of sin, we belong to him, and we are set free from that curse and made Jesus Christ's when, through faith, the promise of God, the work of his cross, becomes mine and becomes yours. Those subsidiary questions that deal with our children, you know, do I, I mean, Ann and I talk about this all the time. We're like, well, we've got, we've got two that we watched grow up and little ones that we're watching grow up, and we've got one, us, we have one, that do we expect to see him or her in eternity? Yeah, we do. Um, but if somebody pushed me against the wall and said, Luke, you have to demonstrate that with this Bible verse, cannot be done. What we can do is say, with children, we have the character of God. What we do know is that born into this world, okay, we, we are in need of ransoming. And that's exactly what is being said here is you're worthy to take this scroll. You're perfect. You were slain. You're the sacrifice. And now by your blood, you bought back, you purchased back people from God from every tribe, every nation, and you've made them now to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth forever and ever. Now, let me stop there, but I want you to pick this up. You, you, you've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought back. You have a new owner. Okay. Are you today reigning on earth Are you what this says? Are you a kingdom of priests? Well, in both cases, the answer is yes. Yes and no. 
you are a kingdom of priests. And, and Peter tells us that, right? In 1 Peter 2, he says, we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and made into what? A kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? Intermediary. We've been called to do what? To go out and bring others to know Jesus Christ, to come underneath that ransoming. That's who we are. Do we do that on earth as people who reign? Well, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, when you just look at it on the superficial face of things, I would say, you guys don't seem like you're doing much reigning at all. Nope, not really. But spiritually speaking, what do we know? We reign together with Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. What you have and what I have as priests who go out and seek to bring others to Jesus Christ is the dynamite of God. Go out boldly with it. Okay? So he's, he's pointing to that, that right now, today, you are a ransomed kingdom of priests bringing people to know Jesus Christ, right? And be bold about that. When will you forever reign with God upon the earth? In eternity. And he's pointing us again to that time that will come. There's a time and a time and a half a time. And now there's eternity. And he's pointing us past that half a time to eternity. Okay. We'll stop there and we're going to get the uh, living creatures and angels now crying out to, to him and close this chapter off. Um, let's pray.